podcast one production. Hello, I'm Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home where we explore the stories behind the food and get to know some of my food heroes. Dr Nick Fuller is a leading obesity researcher in Australia and he's been running the clinical research program at the Bowdoin Institute, Charles Perkins Centre at the University of Sydney for the past decade. He's helped hundreds of people with their weight loss and lifestyle journeys and investigated a broad range of topics and wait for it, including dietary and exercise programs, appetite hormones, commercial programs, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It goes on and on. But I love this. He's written a couple of books and on the back it says, it's not your fault. Tick. And also, have you ever gone on a diet but ended up heavier than when you started? Well, hello, Gary. This one is for you. Nick Fuller. Dr. Nick Fuller, you wrote a book, you've written a number of books, and this one is Interval Weight Loss. So before we kind of get stuck into some nitty-gritty, can you give me a bit of your background? Based on the fact that foodies are listening to this... Uh, I guess my career is not all that boring. I'm not just working in a clinical and academic setting. I did sort of uh, start in the corporate world, believe it or not, delivering advice to participants that appear on those weight loss shows. Right. The ones that we put through, you know, all those drastic measures to get those quick results. Yeah. Because we all tune in and, and we, you know, we love that. We want to see the success. We want to see the success. But Deep down, I knew what we were doing was not right for these people long-term, and I wanted to get back into studying, go back to a clinical setting, and work out why people were failing on their weight loss attempts long-term. So I um, did my doctorate in weight management, understanding how the body actually responds to weight loss. As we know, we can all go out there, follow the latest and greatest diet. We don't have problem a problem losing weight. But sadly, everyone is going back to their start point. They're not only going back to where they started and, and um, regaining that weight, but they're ending up heavier than before they started. So dieting, we have now proven through research and science globally, is accelerating the obesity epidemic. Obviously, very relevant to this is food plays such an important role. Um, and believe it or not, we have overcomplicated what is quite simple. And you know, you know this better than anyone um, you are the expert in this field, and nowadays um, we're all looking for this magic cure. We're looking for the superfoods. Um, we all, I guess, aspire to be those uh, Michelin star chefs in the kitchen. But look, it's more important sometimes just to be cooking from scratch, enjoying that process, and putting good food into the body. I, I must be honest, my heroes in terms of lifestyle have switched. I'm now 53. This is just an excuse, Nick. This is an excuse about what I eat and how I eat. But I, I, who I really want to listen to is my parents, you know, because they're now in their 80s. My wife's parents are in their mid-80s. And they've always been, I go, you know, gee, they're pretty damn healthy. Mandy's dad has never been overweight in his life. He walks every day. He's careful with what he eats and he drinks, but he's always, he has these, uh, he's got somebody on his shoulder that goes, Pat, that's enough. And he stops. And um, I live near a park and I watch um, the personal trainers, you know, beat their clients into submission, you know, and there'll be a 22-year-old trainer training somebody who's 53 and quite obviously overweight and they're throwing kettlebells and everything. And I go, you're listening to the wrong people. 
Like I, I do wonder, but the problem is for all of us, there's so much information out there. It's just utterly confusing. It's so confusing. It's misleading. And we have, I guess, now learnt decades and decades of wrong information. This is a good um, point you make. I mean, the generations before us, they didn't have this or didn't see this obesity epidemic. And when I'm talking about obesity epidemic, I'm talking about people struggling with their weight. The two in three people, when you walk around the streets in your suburbs that have a weight problem, and there might only be a couple of extra kilos around the midriff, or it might be 10, 20, 50 kilos plus of excess weight. Now, this didn't exist. It was sort of the 1970s and 1980s was this pinnacle moment in history where all of a sudden um, the environment changed, the process and packaged foods, those delicious uh, feel-good foods that you know give us that high became available, readily available on every corner of every block. And then we stopped walking everywhere. Parents and grandparents used to walk 15 to 20 kilometres a day. It was very normal to walk to and from the shops, to and from their jobs, have very manual labour, physical exertion um, occupations. And they used to get quality sleep. Nowadays, we're addicted to these devices. We're up all night. We're basically disrupting our circadian rhythm, telling our brain it's daytime instead of nighttime. So we can't get to sleep and we can't stay asleep. So you've got this sort of addiction to food, low physical output, poor quality sleep, which means all of us are putting on anywhere between sort of 0.5 to 2 kilos every year. Yeah. So what do we do? We react by looking for the magic cure, signing up to the next biggest and greatest diet to get that quick fix we're after. We decrease the weight and then our body goes into shutdown, which we can get into, basically fights the weight loss and sends us back to our start point. So, you know, you, you're making a very good point that we need to look to our parents, our grandparents, because they set a very good example of what a healthy lifestyle actually should look like. Mm. And how do we break it down? Because you've got, what I've got in front of me, for example, is you've got six points, right, that are kind of a breakdown of how you tackle this. And I like the first where you said you can't fight evolution. Can we dig into that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. So this is coming down to the very reason why we're failing on our weight loss attempts. So remember, we can go out and, and we don't usually have a problem losing weight and it doesn't matter what approach we take. Some approaches are more drastic than others and, and hence we get bigger and quicker weight loss. Some are, you know, less strict, more sustainable and, you know, we, this, the weight loss is slower, but we still achieve what we're looking for. But the you can't fight evolution principle of this interval weight loss program is basically that the minute you start on your weight loss journey, you are doomed for failure, sadly. Your body will do all it can to eliminate that stress and send you back to your start point. Why is it you can't fight evolution? Because this is an evolutionary problem. It is something due and left over from our time as hunter-gatherers our ancestors, basically, they would go very long periods of time without food. They would go out, hunt for days, weeks, and consequently, when food wasn't available, their bodies learnt to shut down. Their metabolic rate or their, their engine learnt to shut down so that it would hold on to its fat stores. When food was then available, they would gorge. They would seek out those high-calorie, nutrition-dense foods to then store that food before going to search for it again. So what happens is you put our ancestors' genes in the modern-day environment. 
the genes haven't changed. We have the same gene pool as our ancestors, but remember we have a different environment. So you have this evolutionary mismatch. We can't say no to our favorite foods. We don't move and we don't sleep properly. So what happens? The weight goes up. Now, when we react, that's part of that dieting shutdown. Our body sees that as a great stress. So you're up against your body. And this is something that people need to realize when you're going to, to try and lose weight, that you are actually doomed for failure the minute you start because your body doesn't know any better. It is doing what it thinks is best for you. And that is due to, remember, our ancestors and that time and period of time where they would go long periods of food without it. So basically, your body just shuts down. Your metabolism will go down. Your appetite hormones will change, telling you to eat more. These are not subjective feelings. These are actually happening within your body. When we take blood samples from people at our, at our hospital clinics, we can see that their ghrelin levels go up, which basically basically their stomach acting on their brain, telling them to go and eat more food. And it happens until they regain that weight. And even after they've regained it, the ghrelin levels stay high, telling them to continue eating more, to continue storing extra fat so that they prepare for that next bout of starvation. So that whole you can't fight evolution is you're up against your own body. And um, what we've found is that Yes, you can overcome that evolution response or that usual response to weight loss um, through losing weight in four-week cycles, which we can uh, discuss a little bit more. Because obviously we all feel like we're only, a lot of us feel that we're only a few kilos overweight and we can lose it easily. I know my own experience. I think since I left my 30s, that idea is just out of the window, you know, and my set point's about 100 kilos and I go up and down to that 100 kilos and my body loves 100 kilos. I don't think it's very healthy, but it, that's where it wants to be. And it seems to fight me all the time to get there. I then think, okay, you know, I exercise and I stay fit. I watch what I eat. I don't eat lots of prepackaged foods or I don't eat fast food. I eat really good food. And then I go, how bloody hard is it then for somebody that's 20 kilos or 30 kilos overweight rather than, say, 10? So when you're dealing with someone who's really big, how does that look and how are you dealing with that? Because surely introducing the idea of your body's fighting it, they must just throw their hands up in the air and go, well, pfft, it's not worth it. Can't do it. Yeah. Most of the time they do. Then they've been out there on this dieting journey. I guess when it comes to males, we don't tend to do anything. We are stubborn beasts. We don't usually do anything about our health until a serious, serious event happens. And that might be a heart attack. If we're lucky enough to survive that, we then say enough is enough. I'm now going to get my health under control and consequently lose some weight. Females, however, often don't have a weight problem to start with. But I guess social media, mainstream media, it has sort of created this unhealthy perception of what, I guess, a normal or healthy body weight is. And consequently, they're pressured into the dieting industry. They go out there, they try the new diet, they lose the couple of kilos, then they end up two and a half, three kilos heavier. And all they're doing is accelerating their weight problem. So they might start off with just a couple of kilos, like you said, or might be in a normal weight, but then they end up 10 kilos heavier over the course of five to 10 years. Now, the other good point you make is that someone that has, say, 20, 50 kilos or more to lose, well, that can be even more demoralizing if you have been out there and you have learnt 
the hard way, tried all of the latest, you know, online weight loss programs, uh, diets, and have succeeded, but then regained, often you do give up because you've tried everything and, and, and you're sort of disheartened, okay? And secondly, misled with all of that wrong information. So we'll break down some of that too, but I guess once people get the right information and realize how easy it is, uh, we do see success regardless of whether it's a couple of kilos or 50 plus kilos. It just means for someone that's got more weight to lose, it's a longer journey, okay? It's probably been a longer process to get where you are. Um, and also it might be a longer journey in terms of breaking the food addiction because that's not going to happen overnight. And when we go out and want to lose weight, it's not about applying the all or nothing approach. Um, it's about applying these six steps so that you can form habits and implement it in a sustainable way because otherwise you'll end up doing the same thing you've always done. So step two, reach for nature first. Yeah, this is all about food addiction, I guess. I'm just smiling as you say it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're talking to the wrong person. <laughs> no, uh, keep going. So, well, I guess that you know the foodies, the food experts, the chefs, all these pe people that are so passionate about food. We know how to make food taste great, um, but often that might mean um, we add in um, some extra goodies here and there. But if you're cooking from scratch, it really doesn't matter. But what we are now doing is we're relying on process some packaged foods, we're eating out, um, getting takeaway more often. And if you continue to do that all the time, it, eventually your body will give way. And what I mean by that is your waistline will expand. It's very easy for your weight to go up, but as we discussed, it's very easy to bring it down and keep it down. And that's due to our ancestors. We know through research, you can overcome the food addiction. And we use these simple four words, which is reach for nature first. Now, the reason being is because the process and packaged foods, you know, it could be your favorite um, takeaway down the road, um, the hamburger or whatever, well, they make us feel good. When we see them, it, you have a release of dopamine in the brain, which is a learning chemical, telling you to go back for more, and they release all these feel-good chemicals like serotonin. Now, that's a short-term hit that we get. Afterwards, we feel guilty. We question ourselves as to why we did it. But believe it or not, when we put people in a food environment and give them fast food versus nature's treats, the foods that are in their natural, natural state, they release the same feel-good response in the brain. So the fast foods are high in fat, high in sugar. Okay, that's what's triggering the feel-good response, the dopamine release. Nature's treats like the nuts, the avocado, the olive oils, the fruits, they're also high in sugar and or fat. They also release the dopamine, the feel-good response in the brain. You get the identical brain response. The thing is the environment has wired us now to the processed and packaged foods. So they're the ones we keep going to as the default. Our hunter-gatherers, our ancestors used to default to the nature's treats, the berries, the honey. They're the ones they used to seek out all the time. Now we're seeking out the process and packaged food. So if you tell yourself to reach for nature first, you'll get the same feel-good response. It'll make you feel good, but not only that, it'll make you feel good for hours afterwards because it'll fill you up and you won't get that guilt response. You're fighting a number of things though, aren't you? I mean, you're fighting the high street. I mean, it's, um, people are sometimes surprised that there's, a, there's as much science in fast food as there is in what you're doing. They're working out every way 
to make it taste better, to get you hooked. It's the sugar, the salt, the even now in a in a foodie world, they talk about fast food flavor. They've categorized this flavor that we all associate with fast food that either some of us makes us feel makes me feel a bit queasy, to be honest, that idea of it. But certainly when you're out and you're hungry, you know, for a lot of people, it's like, yeah, I'm just gonna grab it, smash it and keep walking. So you're fighting the high street, aren't you? You are. You're up against this industry that is doing all they can to bring you and lure you back to that restaurant, that fast food industry. So you've got sort of two options there. One is that, look, we know the long-term consequences of putting that food in our body all the time. Look at your waistline, but also look at your increased chance of type 2 diabetes, heart disease, heart attacks, etc. So if you continue to do it, you're putting yourself on a short-term path to destruction and your body's going to give way. Now, secondly, if you remember this, reach for nature first and that your brain will release those same feel-good chemicals in the brain, feel-good response. Over time, if you persist with that saying no to the fast food on six out of seven days and go for the reach for nature first on the six out of seven days, eventually that becomes the new wiring. So that's that hard wiring in the brain, which is us defaulting to the fast food industry, well, it's actually, actually, in fact, soft wiring. You can change the wiring, but that response doesn't happen overnight. We know it takes 66 days, more than two months, and it's not about eliminating them altogether. As you said, some of those foods we do like, some of them make us queasy, but it's about finding the ones you love, allowing them one to two times maximum a week, and then always on the other options, defaulting to the reach for nature first. Some simple examples having the, the, the fruits and the nuts with you, some dairy as, you, as you're going, avocado on, on some whole grain toast, cooking with your olive oils and, and things like that because they're the ones that really do make us feel great. I find when I eat really well and actually for a lot of COVID, it's quite funny, I've been testing recipes for a book and posting them on Instagram. People go, wow, look at that, cheese straws or, you know, <laughs> I made Cornish pasties and you know, sausage rolls and whatever. And of course, in the end, I'm having to give this over the fence to the neighbours because I could just, I was putting it on. And I tell people this all the time, you know, and obviously this is, it was kind of, it was almost like training for, a, you know, to put on weight, you know, uh, testing these recipes. But I say to people, because they're often surprised when they make something from scratch, like a sausage roll, and they make the pastry and they make, it takes a lot of time and effort. They're surprised how much fat's in there, for example. They go, oh, wow, that's a, you put that much butter in the pastry. I go, yeah, it's half butter and half flour, right? With a bit of water or a bit of egg or something to bind it. And the same with the cake. Often, and I remember this from being a kid, mum would go, just have a slice, right? Because she made that and she wants it to last for a few days. It's that kind of common sense approach to eating it. But when people see that you put 250 grams of sugar in, and 250 grams of fat and 250 grams of flour and then whatever flavoring you want to put in, they go, really? And I go, yeah, and you go and buy that and just smash it as if, because you're not putting the two things together. You're not relating one experience to another. There's nothing earned. That learning experience has um, or plays a, a very, I guess, vital role in us understanding what we're, what we're putting into our body. And I've heard some great stories in the past where people overcome their food addictions. It might be to chocolate by, you know, going to understand that process. They might be working in that chocolate factory and they can't go anywhere near a chocolate ever again. <laughs> but yeah, I, I guess that's a, a you know, it, it's, um, 
it is a good point. When you understand what you're putting into that food, um, when we make it from scratch, it's always going to be healthier than what it would be if you commercially bought it. But yes, it, it's a process and you can't be putting um, those foods that I guess are indulgent in our body all the time. I think, you know, the way I look at it is I find if I make a litre of ice cream at home and it's delicious, mm-hmm. my daughter will only have a few spoonfuls because she knows, you know, essentially it's milk and cream and egg yolks and sugar and it's really rich. But if I go and buy a litre of ice cream, you know, popular brand, she'll smash half a tub of it and go, oh, I shouldn't have eaten all that. It's really weird. It's a strange disconnect. And, and one is like properly a proper reward with some control in place. The other one is just smashing it because maybe, like you say, there's that dopamine response where you just hit it hard and then regret it afterwards. Yeah, the psychology, I mean, the food addiction is is a very hard one to overcome. I guess the most important message there is just don't cut them out altogether. You've just got to be accountable for when you're having them. Um, And if you, you know, starting off at six days a week, wean yourself down slowly. We can all go cold turkey. It's again, one of those biological pathways that kicks in. Eventually you'll say, what the hell? you'll end up smashing the whole packet of Tim Tams or whatever it might be, whole um, tub of ice cream instead of just a few mouthfuls. I did mean to tell you that at the end of that, after all the recipe testing, I then had to, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I just, I've been eating so well in the last four weeks and I'm ravenous. Like I get up in the morning and I want to eat, you know, two poached eggs with avocado, radish, carrot stuff, you know, like by 11 o'clock I'm hungry again. And my wife will go, what are you doing? I go, I'm just going to go and have some berries and, yogurt and I have to eat quite regularly during the day, but I'm just desperate for it. And when I eat it, it's delicious. Like I'm like, yum, you know, and devour it. It's quite interesting. Yeah. And that's good. That's your body craving nutrition. And we, we need to welcome that. And I guess another part of this dieting industry has led us to believe that deprivation is the answer. We are scared of food. You know, it, one minute it might be carbs, the next minute it's dairy. Then we're told that certain fruits are bad. I mean, this is all absolute nonsense. I love making this series and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One Australia or wherever you listen. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. Let's get you on to the next one. It's fascinating. The full rainbow. It's about not cutting out food. So full rainbow is enjoying um, a variety of foods and, and challenging yourself to try all new foods. Often we, we look at that tofu, we've, you know, we wouldn't know how to cook it or what to do with it and we're scared by it. But often these foods not only are great for our health, our gut health, but importantly our waistline. And when you learn how to cook them, in a simple and easy way, they also often taste great. So Full Rainbow is about not depriving yourself of food. We, we now know that the calorie counting, the meticulously weighing out the 60 grams of chicken doesn't work long term. Our body's far smarter than that, as we've just described. The whole calories in versus calories out, it, it's not as simple as that. Our body just learns to shut down when you deprive yourself. So what you've got to be doing like you're doing is feeding yourself plenty of nutrition. Feeding yourself an abundance of food and allowing it that nutrition it needs. When you wake up and you're hungry, this is great. 
I mean, what happens in the modern day world is we're lucky enough if we run out that door, grab a coffee um, and, you know, probably start our food intake mid-afternoon and ramp it up and dinner becomes that largest meal of the day. Um, this is not good. Your body just learns to, to hold on to that food. It's not as efficient at burning the calories in the evening time. So what you should be doing is actually having breakfast as your biggest meal of the day. And then if you are hungry again, like you just said, 11, feed yourself that nutrition needs. Food is not going to cause weight gain if you, you're feeding it the right type of fuel. What will cause weight gain is the deprivation and also um, the deprivation followed by the what the hell where you go on, you know, on this unlimited binge of processed and packaged and fast food. So full rainbow, have all of the foods, make sure you're including the whole grain carbs, the protein, the good fats, eating from big to small. Dinner is the smallest meal of the day. I struggle with that last one. I've, I've found that in my life, the way I reward myself is to sit down and have a good dinner. And then I have this terrible time around 8.30 where if I don't eat something, and this is what I've realized myself, if I don't eat something good, like if I don't go and get a bowl of yogurt, or eat some berries or nuts or something, then I'm reaching in and eating cheese and that's now I'm on a slide that's well greased and I'm traveling fast. But that's you know? a good slide because you're, <laughs> you're opting for the right right options there, the nuts, the berries, the, the dairy. Um, it's much better than us then binging on the chocolates, the chips, the cheese. So it, it's about making the right choices and preventing hunger creeping in. So don't deprive yourself. Eat regularly. Eat every sort of two to three hours because if you do wait for hunger to creep in, what do we do? Well, the food industry is talking to us as we just talked about. It's screaming at you, telling you to go and grab that burger and you will because it's convenient, it's easy and you have nothing else on you and you're ravenous. So eat frequently to prevent the hunger and have the nature's treats around you. You have those, you're going to fill up and you're going to feel great. But breakfast is the most important meal of the day. We've got it the whole way wrong, wrong way around in, in this, this culture and modern day world. Um, we're neglecting it. And we do what you just said. We have dinner as that biggest meal. Um, that is not good for long-term weight management. If, it's not good for our health. Trouble is, and I'm listening, and I don't want you to answer this bit because we'll get you onto the, the, the step four, but everybody's a bloody expert, aren't they? I mean, your friends are, your family are, you know, and they go, nah, rubbish. Don't eat all day because you that's you just fast. Don't answer that. Use chopsticks. <laughs> oh, I get in trouble if I will answer that one anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Use chopsticks. I'll, I'll, I like I'll make them accountable, but that's okay. Yeah. Um, look, this is all about getting the right information to people. So use chopsticks. This is a fun one. Now, it ties into the small evening meal. Now, I'm listening to you and I'm hearing that your evening routine is difficult. Um, you find it hard to, to not go back for that extra meal after dinner and it's part of the reward of your big day. Um, and it should be because dinner is the most important meal from a cultural and a social perspective, but it's not the most important from a meal size perspective. So what you've got to do is two things. For you um, is break up that evening routine. I want you doing something different. I want you... You know, it could be engaging in one of your favorite hobbies. I know you've got plenty of them. Mm. It could be getting away from the couch, the evening routine where you're watching TV. So it could be hobby, exercise, anything outside in the garden. And then secondly, with that evening meal, 
sitting down away from technology so you're not distracted, either engaging in conversation with loved ones or if you live alone for those those people, writing in a diary and reflecting on your day, listening to music, but using a utensil you're uncomfortable with. So this could be an oyster fork, it could be a teaspoon, or it could be some chopsticks because that will force you to slow down and eat that meal slowly and allow for the appetite signals to be sent from your stomach and other organs like your fat tissue to your brain telling you you're full. What we do is we shovel it in. We don't allow for that clever wiring system to actually signal us to, to put down the, the utensils. So using something you're uncomfortable with, sitting at the dinner table, allows that process to take place because it does take 20 minutes from the signals to be sent from your stomach to your brain to tell you're full. If you're still hungry, go back for more salad and vegetables. And then over time, what you'll do is you'll start to put more breakfast, more at lunch, and you switch down so that you won't be hungry at the evening meal and you'll find that you will require less at that time. But it also means you need to disrupt your routine. That is important. We're creatures of habit. We do the same thing day out and we reach for food. It makes us feel good. And we, we want to reward ourselves with food. And again, like you're doing in the instances, you, you know, the examples you, you just described, they're nature's treats. Going for the berries, the honey, all of those you know, nuts, seeds, they're the ones you can be putting in and they're the ones that will still make you feel good if you are still hungry because you need to be eating. But over time, you'll find that with that use chopsticks principle and the big to small, uh, your appetite will switch off at the end of the day. My daughter went to France for her exchange in year 11, I think it was. Very lucky. But she came back and I said, what's the one thing that stuck with you? And she said the amount of time everyone sits down for a meal. Breakfast, lunch. So lunch could be hour and a half and nearly two hours for dinner. And she said, and they always have cheese at the end. And why aren't they fat? It's quite interesting. It's a big part of their culture, isn't it? So on the face of it, they're eating quite rich food. I mean, obviously their diets change like every country in the, in the West, essentially. But um, yeah, there's long conversation and there's plenty of space and time. And then when, we, when Sarah came over, so you do that exchange and she came over, she was such a slow eater. I'm like, come on, hurry up, Sarah. Because what she would do is she'd pick up her food, she'd put a mouthful in, and then she'd put a knife and fork down and chew her food and then just sit and listen to us. So we'd be woofing down in classic Australian style, getting ready to hit the dishwasher and sit down on the couch. And she was not even halfway through a meal. It was really interesting. I've never actually seen it. In, I mean, I've been overseas a lot, but I've never actually felt it in action like that. Yeah, we can learn a lot from that. And, and my time in, in Europe and part of that culture, particularly uh, the Southern European lifestyle, Food is, is such a big part, but so is the social connections. And so the social connections at food, it's not about eating huge quantities. Um, it's sitting there talking, engaging with loved ones. And like you said, putting the utensils down, that is another great tip. If you don't want to use the chopsticks or the oyster fork or the teaspoon, put the utensils down between every mouthful, chew each mouthful anywhere between sort of 15 and 20 times, and then go again. You'll find that you eat that volume of food much slower and often double to three times the amount of time you used to. It's interesting. I reckon that's the biggest challenge for me. I'm going to give it a go because it just it just makes so much sense. I'm going to follow you up on this regularly. Uh, you're quite welcome to. You're quite welcome to. 
choose to move. This is number five. Yes, this is, um, I guess, as we alluded with uh, prior generations, they set such great examples. They used to walk everywhere. We evolved to move. We used to be out hunting and seeking, yet in the modern day environment, we sit down all day, we're addicted to devices, uh, we drive A to B, uh, we're getting very little incidental movement. So what we're encouraging with this choose to move principle is that, you know, you need it, you do need a wearable activity monitor. And it's not about always engaging in these strict militant exercise programs that we can do for short periods as part of these four, eight or 12 week online programs. Um, you know, but eventually we get sick of it, we don't like it, or we get injured. So with Choose to Move, it's about engaging in incidental activity. So just do the simple things like challenge yourself to use stairs instead of lifts, parking further away, just monitoring your incidental activity, getting yourself a wearable. Most people have them these days, but actually start to do something with that data. And then secondly, look, we do need to huff and puff. Um, we don't have to do it all the time. It's not all about that sort of grunt work. But when you do, do activities you enjoy because it doesn't have to be something you hate. If you don't like the gym, don't go to the gym. If you love playing tennis with your buddies or you know, going for a run at the local oval, that is fantastic. Or doing a body weight circuit in the comfort of your own home where you feel a little bit more secure. That is what it's all about. It's about getting out, getting moving, doing the 30 minutes each day and wearing the activity monitor and making sure you're getting the incidental activity that we used to get. We used to walk, remember, the 15 to 20 kilometres a day. Now we're lucky if we walk a couple of kilometres a day. I used to love the gym. I don't love the gym so much anymore. It's just not stimulating enough. Maybe I did it too much when I was younger and just switched off. But, um, yeah, and I'll go and I'll do it for because I feel good for a while and then I, I just lose interest. It's got to be attached to something now. You know, it's got to be social or it's got to be something that I really enjoy. Otherwise, I won't do it. But gyms have never been busier. Yeah, it's it's very true. But you know what the madness of it is? We get in the car, we drive to the gym, <laughs> we park out the front of the gym, we go in there, we run on a treadmill for 30 minutes, maybe do a gym workout, then we get back in the car, drive home or drive to work. So this is how, I guess, the modern day world is, is really, it is madness uh, you know, you, you rarely see, we go back to that European culture. My time spent there when I walk around, you, you don't see gyms everywhere. Um, activity is part of their normal day-to-day life. They're riding to and from walk, work, walking everywhere as on social outings with friends. So look, try and incorporate it in a way, like you just mentioned too, where you do have a social connection to ensure you are going to keep doing that long-term because we're not moving and then all of a sudden we go to the gym, we do our 30 or 60 minutes. That's enough for heart health, but it's not enough to get you in that weight loss phase. You've got to be moving from an incidental activity point of view. That is more important than structured. We used to laugh at Mandy's dad because he would walk to the pub and so we would take the mickey out of him. This is back in England. But then when we realised the walk to the pub was a solid hike with friends and then they would have a pint and then they'd walk home. So I'm talking six, six miles, you know, six miles and then six miles back. So it was actually a day out, you know what I mean? And he would do it regularly. It was like a walking club. Then they'd have a chat, they'd have a beer, and then they'd walk back. But we did used to think it was funny. <laughs> it is. It's great. I mean, there's, a, again, a lot to be said in that. It sounds like a great activity and something we can try. <laughs> we should be doing. <laughs> yeah. So last, last one of the six steps here is no blue light after twilight. 
Now, this ties into our sleep. Remember, um, we're all addicted to devices. We just can't put them down. The mobile is in the palm of our hand 24-7. But unfortunately, it doesn't matter if it's the mobile, the iPad, the TV, these devices, these technologies are keeping us awake at night. So what they're doing is they're actually switching or disrupting your circadian rhythm, which is switching off melatonin production. Melatonin tells you that you should be going to sleep. So you want melatonin. Now, if you're sitting there on your phone all night, you're going to find that it's, you're going to have a hard time getting to sleep because your brain thinks it's daytime instead of nighttime. And then secondly, you're going to have a hard time staying asleep. So what we say is a simple rule, no blue light. Again, disrupt your evening routine. So you could get on the bike in front of the TV or you could get out in the garden or do some homework with the kids. But then secondly, have an hour at minimum every night where you just don't use devices. Just allow your brain that time. And if you can, you work it up to two hours. Initially, you might only start at half an hour, but that's better than nothing. Work to an hour and then try and have two hours every night before bed with no devices, no TV, no screens, um, just no blue light. I'm looking at Dave and he's rubbing his eyes and yawning. Tell, tell him what happened. Well, I've had trouble sleeping and I'm wondering why I get to sleep really quickly, but then I'll wake up at, could be 1am or whatever, and I just can't get back to sleep. And it's like my stress kicks in that I'm not going to sleep. And so I'll then start panicking and be more anxious that what if I don't go to sleep, then tomorrow's going to be awful and then I won't function. Have you got any mm-hmm. advice for me on that? And I'm, I'm pretty good at shutting down. Were you down. on your phone? Not phone, but I definitely, you know, watch The Crown. Oh, you watch The mm-hmm. Crown, that's, and that's long. And yes. what about also, Dr. Nick, if I was reading a Kindle, it's not an iPad, it's a Kindle, is that light affecting me? Yeah, so two very good questions. I guess in the first instance, look, it doesn't matter what the technology is, it's still going to emit blue light, TVs included, and yes, Kindles. It's not just blue light emission, okay, it's, it's different. Uh, light emission, but blue light in particular. So you've got to try and have a period of time where you do switch off. So look, it might mean you need to step back and get the old school paper back. Now, secondly, when you wake up, there's obviously something else going on in your life, um, other stresses, which are keeping you awake at night. But often what do we do? We turn to our phone, we check the time and we start to scroll through social media that only compounds the issue even more. So when you do wake up, I guess Look, if, if you really wanted to, you could listen to some meditation music, try and switch off, um, but do something different to what you're currently doing and think about that bedtime routine because there's probably something there you can change to ensure not only do you fall asleep, but you stay asleep. Um, alcohol is, a, is one of those things too. It's, you know, it's a sedate, sedative, it puts you, puts you to bed quickly. I've got this four-hour thing. And if I drink wine and then go to bed, I go straight out and four o'clock in the morning, I'm wide awake. Yeah, because it's a stimulant as well and it will, it will then keep you awake. Yeah, not good. Does that make sense, Dave? That does help. Yeah, I think the alcohol might be a big part of the problem. You're annoyed. You're well, I'm glad few, I brought that up. Dave. Yeah, thank you. Few, hopefully that helps some of the listeners as well. Thanks, I want, Nick. I, want to, well, I mean, it's all a big part of the Australian culture. I mean, it is, yeah. But then the social media aspect, the on a number of levels is obviously a problem. And then wired to a phone, I was listening to a podcast with Elon Musk and he was saying, he was talking about AI integration. And the interviewer said, you know, how long before we kind of fully integrated? He said, you are already. He goes, most people are on their phone for five hours plus a day. And he said the main difference between the next 10 and 20 years 
is that the only thing that's slowing us all down, you know, in that medium is our thumbs. So it's actually only going to get worse. And the interviewer was like, no. And he was like, well, yeah, you can choose to engage or not, but you're already part of it. You're already part of it. You're locked into it. You're being tracked, et cetera. So it's a massive part of our lives and hard to ignore. Yeah, very much. So that's why I keep it simple. Just have a block of time, switch it off. You know, that work will wait. Mm. Um, there's more important things, and, and that is always our health. Health and well-being. Absolutely. Definitely. I want to know if there's some kind of personal stories that people might be able to relate to having gone through the steps and listened to some really straightforward and kind of fuss-free advice, it seems so simple, that you've been moved by or that you've used as example? Definitely. I mean, it could be an individual that really struggled that was very much overweight or a personal story that touched you in, in your role in trying to put people back on track. Yeah, well, I've been lucky enough to work literally with thousands of people, initially in the corporate sector um, and, and then of late for now the last 12 years at the University of Sydney and RPA Hospital, working with people, struggling with their weight. Um, sadly, you know, everyone has been out there and they've been on more than 60 diets by the age of 45. That's what our data shows. So when it comes to those personal stories, it is very sad and it's mm. disheartening, but equipping people with the information and, and allowing them to understand that they haven't failed all of these years due to a lack of willpower. They've been failing due to their biology and that new science shows you can overcome your biological response to weight loss with this interval weight loss methodology by losing weight in four-week cycles. So you lose, maintain, lose, maintain, lose, maintain. When you go through those maintenance periods every second month, your body doesn't fight that weight loss. You don't see the decrease in metabolism, the increase in appetite hormones, the change in thyroid function, which usually sends you back to your start point. When we see this working uh, firsthand, not only you know face-to-face, -face, but in the community now where people can read these books, borrow them from the library, follow the program online and be accountable and do it from anywhere in the country and across the globe, it is rewarding because it has helped them break that dieting mentality, that dieting men's mindset, that cycle that they've been in for decades and decades and decades that has only caused more harm than good. And then secondly, seeing them apply those principles and those six steps we just talked about and seeing them regain control of their health and their weight and talk about and blog about those stories in the IWL community, to me, that is very rewarding. And there's so many of those stories. And I guess that is what my passion is to keep, I guess, translating that science from my work at the University of Sydney to equip people with the right information so that we can do something about this obesity epidemic and, and I guess, continue to just disrupt this dieting industry. Um, some diets are better than others, of course. Some are more sustainable than others. But when it comes down to it, our health and wellness is the most important thing. Without it, we have nothing else. Um, and we want to be able to lead happy and long lives. Um, and we talked about some of those examples, like you know the Southern European culture. So it's not too late. You can still unlearn all that wrong information equip yourself with the right information, but you have to be patient. It's not an, something that's going to happen overnight. You've got to remember a 66-day rule, the time it takes to break an old habit, form a new habit. Um, and there is hope, okay? But you just need to apply these principles and you need to be patient. And with time, the weight loss will come. And from the minute you start implementing the principles, your health will improve. 
Love it. It's been an absolutely brilliant chat, and I love how beautifully delivered you are. It makes absolute sense. And so many people that listen to us, including me, just go, yeah, I'm just, you know, there's so much confusing information out there. So I will promise that I will read this from cover to cover. So uh, Interval Weight Loss, and that's one of how many that you've written now? Yeah, so I've been lucky enough to write three. The latest one is Interval Weight Loss for Women, which talks about those six steps in detail. But look, it's not for women. It's for men as well. Um, It's just tackling a few of those other things like pregnancy and menopause that us men never have to go through. Good stuff. And if they want more information about you outside of the books, if they don't buy, where would they go? Yeah, you can jump on, um, go to your library. You can can borrow the books, um, obviously. They will be at your local library. You can also jump on the intervalweightloss.com.au website. There is a plethora of free resources there and educational videos on the YouTube channel to break down and allow you to digest a lot of this information. Gary, it's it's been really an honour to be able to talk to you and I've um, obviously been a huge fan of your work and your career for very many years. Uh, so thank you for this opportunity. I'm, I'm very, very grateful. Yeah, it's a pleasure and an absolutely fascinating conversation. And then you can follow me up whenever you want. I will. I'll be keeping, <laughs> keeping tabs on you. I'll give you a thumbs you. up or a thumbs down. Yeah, we've got to keep that small <laughs> evening meal in place. Right, that's the thing to change. And hopefully, Dave, with that little bit of advice, you'll sleep well tonight. No phone, no blue screens, and disrupt the routine. Less, a little bit less alcohol, maybe. Yeah, that might be the main thing. I love <laughs> thank it. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Nick Fuller, thank you very much indeed. Thanks again. So now for my tips and tricks. And I'm going to say from the get-go, you know, I'm no dietitian, but I love Dr. Nick Fuller's philosophy. It's all about accessing nature's basket. And as a chef, as a cook, I believe in exactly the same thing. But from a point of view of eating well, it means, and I stick to this, is having a fridge full of fresh. It means you've got lots of choice when it comes to throwing something quickly together that's going to taste delicious. And better than that, being crunchy and full of flavor. I've got a few simple rules that I follow. I make sure that I've got things like dressings already made. I have a coriander chutney or a red dal chutney that has very little oil, if any at all. Or something like a soy yuzu or even lemon dressing with a bit of sesame. So if you're going to chuck a salad together, you've already got something that's jam-packed full of flavor. You can just drizzle over the top and it's ready to go. So if you think about Dr. Nick's experience and mine too, it's about setting yourself up for success. So when you need something quick to eat, it's not a cheese sandwich with ham and mayo although that's delicious too, once in a while. A Plate to Call Home is a Podcast One production produced by Dave Swalensky with audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.